John 3, we're in verse 22, and I'm going to read this, and then we will pray and jump in. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also there, uh, was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning praying that you will work uh, this same heart that John has into us, that we would see you increase your glory, your dominance, your influence, uh, your kindness would increase in this world. Lord, open our hearts to your word. Teach us, shape us in our uh, mind, shape us in our hearts and our hands, Lord. We pray that you would do these things and that you would give us greater joy because of it. Lord, I pray uh, for my own mind and words that you'd be with me and that you uh, would make the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth pleasing in your sight. In the name of our Lord, amen. When I was in college, uh, I loved to bash other churches, right? Uh, I had become convinced that when the Bible speaks, uh, it speaks only the truth because God is the one who's speaking and so there's no error in it and so... When I uh, see other churches who are willing to compromise different aspects of what the scriptures say, uh, I would just uh, tear them apart. Uh, rather than being grieved for them, I was elated to put them down. Uh, I was, as uh, Chris Van Hoffigan likes to call it, I was in the cage stage. That stage where you're so militant in your beliefs, you might be better off being put in a cage and kept from everyone else. <laughs> Uh, in particular, I was very militant in my uh, Calvinist way of reading the Bible that I really believed that God predestined everyone. And so if you didn't hold to that, you know, I would even say things like, I don't even know if you know the Lord. I realize this is embarrassingly arrogant. I hate saying these things to you all, but this is true. This was uh, true of me at a time. Well, my humbling actually came through meeting folks in this denomination. Uh, in college, I was involved in something called RUF. You've probably heard us talk about it. It's a college ministry uh, of our denomination. We'd like to get one here in Bellingham for all the various colleges. Uh, I went because I knew that they were Reformed and Calvinist and they believed the Bible, and I was really excited to listen to a professional shallow church basher. <laughs> right? I thought I was going to be like going to go see the Harlem Globetrotters with like you know, balls spinning on his finger and backflips, but like more of a theological style of uh, spinning and backflips. And uh, he would really just, you know, really get the sucker punch in good. Uh, I thought it was going to be like that, so when I met him beforehand, the campus minister, uh, 
I threw out some comment like, oh yeah, have you heard of this one megachurch? You know, they're not Calvinists, you know. And I was really hoping he would take the bait and just jump in, right? Let the bashing begin. Uh, but he didn't. Instead, what he said to me was, oh yeah, I have heard of them. And you know, I actually know some people who've really benefited from their ministry. Uh, what were you going to say about them? It was uh, one of the sweetest rebukes I've ever received. I finally saw myself, right? I finally saw myself as I really was, a Christian basher. So terrible. It's so arrogant. It's so uh, horrible that I would mock other Christians. That I thought uh, I could beat them in some sort of competition. Well, thankfully the meeting continued and... uh, The sermon was phenomenal. In fact, it was very personally convicting. Walked away, uh, having a number of my own issues brought to the fore. Uh, That was the night I learned what it meant to be a Catholic Christian. Catholic, in the true sense of the word. Now, the topic I want to address from this passage, there's lots of things we can pull out of this passage, but the topic I want to talk about is Catholicity. I know most of us, when we hear that word, our eyes begin to glaze over. I knew that preacher was going to try and make us a Catholic. That's not what I mean. Uh, I'm not speaking about Catholicism, but Catholicity. The same thing we confess in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Catholic Church. That's the word we confess. So that word, Catholic, uh, just means entire or universal. And the idea is that if I'm joined to Jesus, who is the head of the body, then there's an entire organism that is also joined to him. There's only one. Jesus is not a one-headed Siamese twin, right? There's, there's not a, a multiple bodies connected to the one head. There's one body. One body. So as an entire organism, we are all united to Christ, and we're all united, united to each other according to Christ. So this is true of each local church, right? Individually, uh, we're not just individuals who happen to assemble in some place and otherwise we have nothing to do with each other. No, in fact, we're actually joined to each other as we are joined to Christ. You know, this is an important topic for us as Americans. Uh, I think typically it's easy to have this default view, that this is my church, right? And because we're so independent in the rest of our lives and we get to do whatever we want with our own stuff and everything can be the way I want it, it's easy to slip into thinking that the church should be the same way, that it should just be the way I want. This is true for members, certainly. This is certainly true for pastors and elders and deacons. This is my thing. So in the creed, we are actually saying that we believe the church is much bigger than my preferences The church is bigger than our local version of it. In fact, uh, the church is bigger than any national church or any other sub-niche of Christianity. Uh, The church is bigger than that because Christ is, in fact, working globally. So when we speak about the church, the one church, we're speaking about the big C church, and it's Jesus who is the head. And he gets to decide who's in and who's out, not us. That's the idea of Catholicity. And this morning I want to consider uh, John's response to his disciples as expressing exactly this heart. This is the heart of Catholicity, the voice of Catholicity. Okay? 
His disciples uh, expressed this powerful fear. If you look at uh, verse 26, you can feel the worry that is just loaded in what they say, right? Everyone is going to him. Everyone's flocking over to Jesus. They're worried uh, that John's ministry is beginning to decline and that all of the disciples are beginning to kind of run off to another uh, rabbi, another teacher. And uh, it's this kind of fear that often produces uh, competition, the same kind of competitive heart that's actually quite easy to find uh, between churches and ministers. Uh, This worry, everyone's going to him, we're losing, is the worry of the schismatic heart, the heart that wants schism, that splits things apart. Because uh, we want to see our own ministry flourish so much that we begin to view others as competition. So if, I think if they were going to say what they really meant to say, these disciples, they would say, everyone's going away from us, and we are worried that you, John, have failed, and by consequence that we, our team, is losing. And we want you to do something about it. Right? John, get on the ball, bro. Time to revamp your ministry, repackage, do something. Just kind of like the comment I pitched, they want uh, John to pick up and kind of go on to rebuke Jesus because Jesus is their competition in their minds. But instead, uh, John speaks of his service to Jesus. He's a servant to who they think is their competition. So I want to think about uh, four things in John's Catholicity. Uh, First, John's Catholicity is Humble. It's humble. Second, John's Catholicity is Christ-centered. Third, his Catholicity is orthodox. And fourth, his Catholicity is joyful. The first point will be the longest, and they're going to get much shorter as we go on. So uh, if you think (laughs) each point will be quite as long, uh, don't worry. So look at verse 27 with me. This is John's response to his disciples. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You know, his disciples ask him to gain control over these people leaving his ministry, uh, leaving him for Jesus. And we see that John actually, rather than thinking his ministry is is his own, actually understands his entire ministry as a gift from the Lord. This is something that God has given him. So to take ownership of it, to feel an entitlement to it, in John's eyes, would be really arrogant. John gets uh, what David expresses in Psalm 84.10. This is a familiar verse. David says, uh, a day in the courts of the Lord would be better than a thousand elsewhere. Uh, To be a doorkeeper of the Lord is better than to serve in the tents of wickedness. To be a doorkeeper. It's not a particularly, phenomenally fantastic job. Simple. I just want to be in the Lord's service. That's better. In fact, he's saying, John is saying that not only his ministry, everything he has, everything he is, is a gift from the Lord. It's entirely a result of God's kindness to him and not from anything he has done. And this really is just basic Christianity. This is uh, one of those beautiful statements that hits the nail on the head, that expresses what it is to be a Christian. Everything I have, I have because of God's grace to me. Undeserved kindness. No merit of my own, no competence, no ability, certainly no righteousness. Uh, 
In fact, my sin should have made God turn away from me. But God has instead shown me grace upon grace in the person of Jesus. So I depend on Jesus now. And he's given me everything I have, and I'm willing to give everything back to him. In fact, I'm honored and delighted and overjoyed simply to give it back to him to be used. That is the voice of a humble person. If it's my great honor to serve Jesus in any way I can, I'll be willing to take the most petty of jobs. Right? The most petty of jobs. I'll be willing to uh, rejoice to see Jesus exalted by anyone and exalted at all. Now, uh, if I don't want to take the small jobs, the quiet, the unnoticed jobs, chances are it's likely that I don't really care to exalt Christ but myself. I'm speaking personally. Entitlement in ministry is a great temptation for pastors. Uh, Personal success, my gifts being valued, used, exhibited, uh, admired, these things are good and nice, but they represent some of the main idols for anyone involved in ministry. Control is the key word here, since uh, it represents the opposite kind of posture that John has, the kind of humility, the open hand. And it's often this kind of pride that wants to have control that tends to produce church splits. So let me just take a moment. Uh, This is somewhat tangential, but I want to address it. Uh, I want to talk about denominationalism. I think this is a a perfectly legitimate topic. Because oftentimes it seems to be the opposite of Catholicity. If I'm saying I'm I'm a Catholic Christian, I'm involved with everyone... How is it that I can also be a member of a denomination? Well, uh, truth be told, denominations are dangerous and often necessary. Uh, so uh, the unity of the church would imply we have no denominations, and actually many have been formed for petty reasons, right? Uh, if you look at our, the Presbyterian, American Presbyterian family tree, there's splits and remergers all over the place. It's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> uh, how many times? But uh, they're often necessary. Our own denomination uh, split from its parent denomination in the 60s and 70s because uh, they had begun to allow uh, pastors to be ordained as teachers in the church uh, who also would deny that Jesus was truly God and truly man. Uh, They would also deny that Jesus actually died on the cross and that he saved us from our sins, that he actually bore God's wrath. They would deny that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. And so our our denomination said, you know... there's nothing about this that we can have any patience with. We can't count this. That's just not Christianity. In fact, that's the opposite of Christianity, so we have to begin our own denomination. That's certainly not a petty issue. In fact, it's just plain heresy. But what about smaller issues? And I think this is actually the majority. The reality is, is that uh, in some ways denominations are necessary because we can't help but having uh, different, differing practices if we understand Scripture differently and come to different convictions. For example, infant baptism. Uh, I actually got a chance to get coffee with the new pastor of Emmanuel Bible Church, a wonderful church in Columbia neighborhood. He and I sat down a week or two ago. And uh, 99% of the con- conversation, he and I see eye to eye. We're just talking about ministry, talking about each other's lives, encouraging each other. And we both acknowledge at some point in the conversation, yeah, we're infant Baptist, you're not. Okay. And we move right along. Uh, the reality is, is that uh, those convictions do determine how we practice. And we can't help but say, well, at some point, I'm going to have to either decide to baptize the infant or not. 
right? But the problem is that we tend to think of being a part of a denomination as being part of the problem in terms of Christianity being split. You know, I grew up uh, in a non-denominational church, which in my experience, uh, wonderful people, delightful church, uh, but that usually did not mean that we uh, spent a whole lot of time working with other churches or having broad fellowship of all sorts. In fact, because we were non-denominational, usually what it meant is that we were almost uber-schismatic. We were practically more removed from other churches because we didn't want to be affiliated with anyone. So in fact, rather than having actual fellowship with people and working out differences, we just kind of stuck on our own. So here at Christ Church, we are part of a denomination. Uh, I don't know if everyone realizes that. I think some of Nate's wisdom in naming the church Christ Church Bellingham is that our real goal is to be a Christian church. It's not named Christ Church Presbyterian, for better or for worse, but I think some of what we're trying to communicate is that we're just Christians at the end of the day, and we're interested in Jesus and what he's doing. In our church, uh, to become a member, all we ask is that you be a practicing Christian that you hold to just basic Orthodox beliefs. That's about it. Uh, We also ask that you don't complain when we begin to practice our biblical convictions. Uh, They don't give us trouble because, in fact, we do have biblical convictions and we're going to try and live in light of those. All we ask is you don't be surprised. So, in fact, what we really ask is that you invite, uh, is that we invite you to come and ask us why it is we have these particular convictions, how this all works out. Why is it that you believe in uh, all these various things in your confession? The reality is is that uh, denominationalism can be a practical, humble outworking of Catholicity. Let me say that in an easier way. Uh, Being a part of denomination can be a way of actually humbly working with other people. Because you could be saying in your heart, because I believe the church is unified in Christ and is an entire organism, I will link arms with brothers and sisters. I will even submit to them and accept their differences and forgive and cover their weaknesses and learn from them. I mean, I've actually found this to be the general rule in our denomination. This is actually the spirit, the general pulse of our denomination, that we are actually a fairly large tent and we want to, as best as we can, maintain fellowship at all costs except on the greatest issues. So even in our presbytery, in our local uh, gathering, there's various stances on issues. Uh, none of which are all that large, but we're happy to sit in fellowship with each other and actually learn from each other and value each other's ministry. But I also said denominationalism can be dangerous. Here's why I think it can be dangerous, at least one reason. Oftentimes, what parades around as division because of theological accuracy is actually, at the end of the day, schismatic arrogance. So let me say it another way. We can be pretending to defend God's honor and name because of some theological point when in fact what we're really bent on is proving to everyone that I'm right. Proving to everyone that I've figured it out. This is what Jesus expressed best. You strain a gnat and swallow a camel. In fact, uh, we may actually be right on that point of doctrine, right? It's entirely possible. But in the process, 
of beginning to bash other people, beginning to push away and reject, uh, we actually undo any good that might have come from being right about that. Right? Uh, we actually undo the whole kit and caboodle. So this is actually very common in the Reformed world. Presbyterians are part of kind of a broader Reformed world. Uh, we are a people who take theology seriously, right? We love it. Uh, there's a lot of sharp thinkers. A lot of you are probably attracted to the church because there's teaching and thinking and dialogue and discussion. And uh, with sharp minds, though, often come uh, sharp tongues and cold hearts. Uh, there are even churches that say things like, we are the only true church. How arrogant is that? I mean, how painfully arrogant is that? And thankfully, uh, these usually are not PCA churches, but they are Reformed churches. This is true with doctrinal issues, but uh, actually the way it usually comes out and works itself out is in practical issues, the application of those doctrinal issues. Let me give you an example that's very close to home. Christian education. Uh, we have a school as, that we as a church began uh, as a ministry to this church, but also to Bellingham. And so it would be very easy for us as a church to begin to say that actually the core of our identity is this particular mode of Christian education. It's always tempting to say that if you really believe in discipling your children and uh, doing it in a Christian way, then uh, you should do this kind of educational method of school, and you just fill in the blank, because it worked for my kids, right? The problem uh, here is actually not the good idea you have, right? It's actually, usually, most of us have lots of good ideas. There's plenty of good ideas to go around. The problem uh, is not even your strong conviction that Christian children should be discipled in a Christian way in their education. The problem is that when you begin to insist that if you actually believe in discipling your children in a Christian way, the only way to do it is in your way. Because what you immediately imply is that if you don't do it your way, you don't actually care about discipling your children. But it's not true. Period. Many people care deeply about discipling their children and in fact have chosen various ways to educate their children. Sometimes different modes for each child. Right? Uh, let me just say for a moment that we as a congregation have uh, many schooling choices represented. Our, my family, we are homeschoolers for now uh, until it doesn't fit. Uh, the Walkers have their kids at TCS. Other families uh, have done classical conversations. Other families have their kids in public school. Uh, I don't believe that all those choices are equal. Let me just say that plainly. Uh, in fact, I think that each of those choices require varying degrees of parental involvement and investment, not only in the child, but also in the culture and environment of that school. That's really the issue. All right? How much time and energy do I want to invest in the discipleship and guaranteeing that my child is cared for? And in fact, uh, the one that we often assume to be the easiest in terms of parental involvement, namely public schooling, I personally actually believe takes the most amount of parental involvement, uh, making sure that my child is actually being discipled with the mind of Christ. That is not an argument against public schooling, but it is to say that uh, we, if we are going to send our kids in any way, we need to be vigilant in thinking through how it is that they're being formed by the mind and the heart of Christ rather than the punk kid at school who won't leave him alone. 
or the cultural ways of thinking. And this can happen in any kind of school setting. The problem, uh, sorry, this doesn't mean that homeschooling parents don't struggle, of course, with the same problems with their kids as well. I can detail them all to you if you'd like. Uh, what we want to be as a church is a group who thinks long and hard about what it means to intentionally disciple our children well, to care for them, to see that the love of Christ is cultivated in their hearts, and to not fool ourselves in thinking, it's fine, mail it in. That said, uh, we refuse we refuse to be a congregation that divides down the lines of educational method. We cannot tolerate that kind of division. In fact, it's anti-Christian. So we have to guard in our own hearts against those secret suspicions that, oh, well, I'm not part of that particular schooling method, so they must not want to be with me. Or they're not part of this method, so I can't be with them any of those insecurities and fears that make us defensive work against our union in Christ. There's no reason to separate over the issue of Christian education or a particular method for Christians, but this doesn't actually mean that we will all agree. Right? Look at verse 25 with me. Now a discussion arose, or a debate happened, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. You'd think that with the two greatest pastors of all time, John the Baptist and Jesus, right, there'd be nothing but clarity, right? Uh, no room for confusion. But in fact, what really happens is actually more questions are stirred up, right? In fact, uh, they bring up more discussions, and Jesus and John are not threatened by the discussion. They're not threatened by the debate. They're not threatened by the lack of certainty in some particular area. So it turns out that humble Catholicity can tolerate a wide variety of opinions and feelings because of the overwhelming joy of being in Christ. And this is our second point. Catholicity is Jesus and kingdom-centric. And we're going to start speeding up now. Don't, don't you worry. This is how uh, John views his own ministry. Right? Look at verse 29. He sees his ministry as preparatory, and he sums it all up with this image of the bride, the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's friend. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This friend that John's talking about in this day uh, was the guy who was responsible for setting up the wedding. Okay, uh, he is the wedding coordinator as well as uh, you know master of ceremonies and everything else. Uh, it's his job to make sure everything goes without a hitch, and in some instances, even he like walks the bride to the groom. He's the personal escort, guardian, caretaker. So for this friend to have the bride in the full sense of that word. Uh, would be the greatest of betrayals. Uh, it would be heinous adultery and threat and theft and betrayal of their friendship. Uh, John, along with all of the Old Testament prophets, were part of the preparation for the great wedding day of God's people, the bride, to be joined to the groom, Jesus himself. 
And so, uh, for John, he knows the bride was never his. It's always been Jesus's. He says this in verse 28 very clearly. He is not the Christ. He is the one who is sent by God as the captain of salvation. It's kind of like saying, I'm the legwork guy, right? I'm the behind-the-scenes guy. I, do all, I set up the stage. I run the sound. I, I promote the concert for the band. But Jesus is the main event. And here's the thing that's beautiful about John is that he's not simply concerned to make sure that the whole thing goes on without a hitch, but is himself longing to be joined to Jesus, longing to behold Jesus. Look at verse 30. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. He must increase, but I must decrease. These two uh, verbs, increase and decrease, were often used in Jesus' day to speak about uh, the rising of the sun and the increase of its light and the setting of the sun and the decrease of its light. So uh, when John says this about Jesus... He thinks that Jesus is the great brightness of God. The great dawn of the new age of God's kindness and glory being displayed in the earth who will shine greater and greater still and never set. In fact, John sees himself almost like the moon, the lesser light who ruled the night for a time, who doesn't have a light of its own, who simply reflects back the fullness of Jesus' light and rejoices to see Jesus come into his full. That's John's heart. Overflowing with delight to see Jesus displayed. In fact, the humility that we talked about in point one happens because of this delight in Jesus. They're just two sides of the same coin. Delighting in, looking towards, beholding, rejoicing in the dawning of Jesus is what makes a humble heart. So, Catholicity is actually centered on Jesus. John sees the only value of his ministry is in serving Christ and for people to know Christ. He doesn't want to steal the bride. That would be ministerial adultery, right? Pastoral adultery, trying to steal the church for himself. Uh, This is actually the same for the elders and Nate and I. That the church... You all do not belong to us, ultimately. And actually, we don't ultimately belong to you all. Ultimately, we all belong to Jesus. You are his people. I'm part of his people. So rather than having to fight to make our ministry great, we are actually uh, free to cheer on uh, each other's ministry. Uh, Other churches' ministry, we're delighted to see Christ being exalted in all, if he is the head of the church, then we just delight to see the church growing. We want to see Christ's name and ministry grow and shine at full strength. And if this is our heart, what that means is that we actually find ourselves to be on a massive team. One that doesn't simply involve various groups in this church, certainly does, one that doesn't simply involve the various churches in Bellingham, but actually around the globe, right? Uh, The church is always local, but never just local. That's what this means. So as much as you need to be a part of a local congregation, right? There's no such thing as kind of broadly being a part of the church. That's kind of like broadly being a husband. We call that a ladies' man, right? Uh, There's no such thing as broadly being a part of the church. You actually have to be a committed member of a church to be part of the body of Christ. 
Well, in the same way, uh, the church is not just one local family. The church belongs to Jesus, and he's working all over. So, in fact, there's no racial or social or national or geographic borders that divide the church. So we can look to churches like Oikos or Redeemer or Emmanuel unflinchingly and just call them brothers. And of course, oh my goodness, I would be pleased to see anyone worship at any of these churches. To name a few. There's many more. But this also means that you can go almost anywhere in the world and meet real Christians. Right? Have you ever thought about that? You can go anywhere and meet real Christians. And this is why the global church is important to us. This is why when the church is persecuted in Pakistan, we pray. We pray for that church. This is why uh, when the church in France is uh, getting weaker and under-equipped and needing encouragement, we uh, pray for them and send them people and families to encourage them. This is why when the church in Russia is fledgling and struggling, we send them money and teachers and people and we pray for them because they're a part of our body. They are one of our organs. And if we're part of the same body as everyone else who's joined to Jesus, this means that Jesus is the organizing principle of this organism. He is the one who decides inclusion. And this is our third point. Catholicity is orthodox. What I mean by orthodox is that uh, it follows the pattern of teaching and thinking laid down by the apostles and the scriptures. All right? So, uh, following the plain teaching of Scripture. Holding to the basic creeds. And uh, this is actually what John expresses in his devotion to Jesus in verse 30. John's great doxology, his uh, praise of God, his humbling of himself, is not uh, just objective. It's centered on Jesus. He does it because of the person of Jesus. And John's not in the clouds about who Jesus is, right? He doesn't have kind of broad feelings and thoughts. John's the guy to whom heaven opened up and said, by the way, John, Jesus is the Christ, right? John sees the Holy Spirit come and remain on Jesus. And he's perfectly willing to correct anyone and everyone about who is the Christ and who is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. John is perfectly sure and clear about who Jesus is. So we need to see that Catholicity exists because Christ is so highly exalted. And anyone, uh, excuse me, because he is our focal point. So Catholicity, our ability to be joined to others, exists because Christ is known. Paul says uh, this in Colossians, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This means that there is no bond between Christians and Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Mormons, or even other Christian-like groups who deny basic things about Jesus. There's no bond between us and them like there is between us and each other. That doesn't mean that we don't share a common humanity. In fact, there's quite a bit to share there. But we can't go on pretending that uh, we're all kind of part of the same faith family. It's just actually very different. 
Christ is all. That's what Catholicity means. If you're in Christ, and you're in Christ, and I'm in Christ, and that means Christ is the one organizing principle, and if we don't have him, we miss out of the whole kit and caboodle. Everything is lost. This means that we have to be able to name error for what it is. We have to call a spade a spade. Our Catholicity, our unity with each other and with other churches and bridging denominational lines cannot stomach lies about Jesus. Think about this for a second. Imagine that uh, you were part of a large family with a main patriarch. And half of the family was convinced that the patriarch was a lying, cheating scoundrel formerly involved with the mafia who would gladly steal your shoes if you weren't looking. While the other half of the family imagines him to be this honest, hard-working man who is willing to sacrifice anything to give up his life to buy you a pair of shoes. And you all get around for a family reunion. Can that work? Sure, I guess. <laughs> for a while. But the union you have with each other uh, is so shallow and so temporary uh, that it's probably largely imagined. That's what I'm saying with us and other faith groups. If they don't have Christ, they don't have anything. John was not confused about who Jesus was, nor would he tolerate any lies about Jesus. But you don't get the sense, however, that this makes him a terribly grumpy, nitpicky fellow, right? He doesn't enter into the debate and say, well, now, and you really need to think about the grammar in this one verse in Jeremiah. He has deep joy. Deep joy, right? That's the sense that you get, the feel of John's words. This is not uh, grudgery, uh, drudgery for him to say, uh, Jesus must increase. In fact, Catholicity is our joy. If Christ is all, the exalted Savior and head of the church, it actually works for our good and happiness. If Jesus is carrying you and me, guess what that means? I can be joyful in serving you and not get burnt out because he's taking care of you and me. Rather than being embarrassed or ashamed or envious when we see other churches flourishing, we're encouraged to see the Lord blessing our friends. And what that means is that actually the number of friendships I get increases. It multiplies. I'm more encouraged, more overjoyed, more thankful to see God's grace thriving in Bellingham and across the world. This is true even just in basic Christian friendships. You know, the more I've moved, the more Christian friendships I've gotten, and I haven't lost them, right? Whenever I catch up, I just get more encouragement. I hear about God working in their lives. Christians, Christian friendships don't divide, they multiply and compound. That's true of our life together. And if that's true, then so also does our joy. So as our humility increases, so also does our willingness to work with those who are not like us. Our joy is increased as we see Christ exalted. As we deepen in our devotion to Jesus, we find that our joy increases, as does our humility, making us much more fruitful, much more fruitful in our ministry to each other and to the lost world around us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have saved uh, such a whole host of people. Millions call your name. The triumph of your cross, Lord, uh, has spread throughout the world, throughout time. There are already 
Millions in heaven praising your name and we are joined to them by your spirit. So would you give us humble hearts that rejoice to see our brothers and sisters thriving because it is the increase of your glory. Do this in our hearts, we pray. Amen.